Ads, schmads. If you don't want ads, that's okay. Choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts. And hey, presto, no ads. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. Sur le pont d'Avignon, on y danse, on y danse. Sur le pont d'Avignon, on y danse tous en bas. Bonjour tout le monde, nous sommes complètement français aujourd'hui. How are you, John? Yeah, oui, très bien. Très bien. How is your French? Yeah, my French is very good. Uh, actually, I'm in the process of learning French on Babel, 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 whichever one it is. The Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, the multilingual Tower of Ancient That's Babylonia. Right. That's correct. Go on, tell me more, tell me more. No, no, You're learning I, French. I'm learning French. I decided I need to, to learn. apprendre la langue française. Or français. Is it français or français? Is the language of French male huh? or female? I don't know. <laughs> Je ne sais pas. This is a new thing. Yeah. And when I say it's a new thing, it's a very new C'est thing. C'est un truc nouveau. Oui. <laughs> oui. <laughs> So you're learning French. This is this is this is to get your mind going, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of missed that in languages when I was when I was younger. You know the way they teach languages in school. Yeah, I found it really, really hard, particularly Irish, as you know. <laughs> but years ago, I did an album in France with a, a guy called Frank Eschigo in Clermont-Ferrand, and I lived there for three months. And by the end of the three months, I was. You were flying. Spouting out. I was talking technical, engineering, sound stuff in wow. French. And so then, you can, so you have it. And any, anybody can. But it's about getting absorbed in it. So okay. I got myself Babel and I'm walking around like a cop shite, walking well, around the park with the dogs and me going, ha, 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 so often. The podcast is now officially looking for a French sponsor. We are looking for the <laughs> yes. cultural, the Allée Française. Do you know that I was actually a... Parapluie, which is an umbrella in a French play called In the Alliance Francaise. Isn't that mad? Right? What? Sorry, years, say that again. You're... Years ago, I was learning French in the Alliance Francaise because I had to go to Belgium to, yes. to study and I couldn't speak oh, for French. Oh, your master's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't speak French. So I went to this thing and the geezer who was teaching us, right, was a theatrical, very French geezer, right? Yeah. He was into Dadaism, right? The cult of Dadaism, the sort of the theatre of Dada. And it was a thing called the Champ Magnétique. Champ, yeah, the Magnetic Fields was the name of the play. Right, right? sounds good. <laughs> and to do a play, so you'd have to be quite good. 
But I got a part and I was an umbrella. <laughs> How did you play the I umbrella? Was umbrella? I was a parapluie. How did you get into character? I got into character. I was, it was, it was just, it was all this theatre of the absurd stuff. It was mad stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I was the parapluie. I was the umbrella. And I just stood there with, under an umbrella and I spoke. It was like kind of Beckett Easter, so I spoke a couple of times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I was meant to be very theatrical and very profound. I can't remember what I was supposed to represent. But it's good, I mean. You didn't get a call back then, no? No. <laughs> I didn't, exactly. My Sasha Distel moment was over. <laughs> the reason we're talking France here is not only is John going back to school, but we're going to go, John, to the little town of Avignon, right? And the reason we're going to Avignon is that song that we heard, that children's song about the Pont d'Avignon, mm. which is a song that all French school children learn, is actually about the bridge in Avignon, right, in this place, and the bridge collapsed. And we're going to talk about climate change through the story of the Pont d'Avignon. Okay, and the reason we're going to talk about climate change this week is, John, the European Copernicus Climate Change Service, right? So it's yeah. obviously, if it's going for Copernicus, it's going for the big guys, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> it revealed that the world has just experienced the warmest January on record, ever. Yeah. Average temperature is 0.7 degrees higher than the, in the 30 years up to 2020. And this is the figure that jumped out at me. 1.6 degrees higher than the typical January temperature in the pre-industrial age. So I want to go back to the pre-industrial age yeah. to see what's happening there. So it's the economics of climate change through the centuries, through the ages, right? And we're starting in the epicenter of this, which was Avignon. Yes, And the reason Avignon is interesting for our economic history, and I know that lots of listeners are suckers for economic history and what was happening, is that the Vatican moved from Rome to Avignon because there was many scraps between the Vatican and the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah. And there were all sorts of tussles between various different popes and various different empires. And of course, they couldn't defend the Vatican. So they shifted to Avignon, which is on the Rhone. And the River Rhone, when you see it, you realise that the River Rhone was for centuries the main commercial artery of southwestern Europe. Yeah. So it travels all the way, right? The Rhone obviously comes out in the south of France, rises in the middle of France. It's an extraordinary river. And up until the Hundred Years' War between France and England, which you imagine they, they scrapped for 100 years, which is really dumb. Yeah. They can scrap for a couple of years, grant. But for 100 that's years... That's five generations. Yeah, yeah, and that's lots and lots. Yeah. And that's where, that's where giving the finger comes from, the two fingers. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. the English were much better archers than the French. Yeah, yeah. Used, right? Okay, anyway, that's another thing, right? But in terms of economic history, rivers dictated the patterns of trade for centuries and centuries, well before roads, rivers and seas, obviously. Mm. And the Rhone dictated the pattern of trade, not just between France and England, but between England and the Mediterranean. And the reason this was important was England was one of the greatest exporters of wool and the Mediterraneans were the greatest makers of cloth. So there was a huge trade between okay, England yeah. and France going up and down the Rhone, which is why towns like Avignon became incredibly commercially savvy. And then once they had money, they started to build beautiful things. But our friend Dettini, John, Yes. Remember the book, so the Merchant of Prato. Remind me of, of Okay, Dicini. so Prato is a small town outside of Florence. And the Merchant of Prato is a treasure trove of letters written by this guy called Marco Dattini to his wife, Francesca, yeah. about his business, right? And they lived, amazingly, this is, this is amazing, they lived mm. in the late 13th century. And he started his business as an Italian entrepreneur, businessman, merchant in Avignon right, where he was selling, buying and selling shields 
and swords for the royal court. Okay, okay right. And it may well have been the Swiss guards who still knock around the Vatican. Mm. But what is beautiful about the Merchant of Prato, it was a trove of letters that were found entirely intact. And what it gives you is a sense of the extraordinary network of these merchants in the 13th century. I mean, it's a long, long mm. time ago. And of course, the nice thing about himself and Francesca is that the wife ran the business around the Florence area in Prato while he was out gallivanting all around the place, right? Why would you be writing to your wife or your friend or your partner and just prattling on about, you know, your network and your business? Well, and this, all is, the... see, this is the lovely thing. Is they, they weren't, they, they were, it's a really good love affair, right? Yeah. And she's very, very forgiving because he goes off with a slave. They have slaves. And he got one of the slaves off the pole, right? Right, right? Okay. okay. Despite professing great Catholicism and Christianity right. and all this thing. But Francesca forgave him and took the slave girl in. So basically, Italy after the Black Death. So we're talking about we're talking about the period just after Black Death. They're born in the, er, the very, very late 13th century, so 1290. Mm. And they live all the way. Lives, this is till about 70. So this is about during the Black Death. So what happens is Italy after the Black Death, they lost so many people. Imagine this, right? Mm. That they imported hundreds of thousands of slaves. The Italians, because they replaced their workforce yeah. with slaves, which is why many people suggest that Italians tend to look less Mediterranean than other Mediterraneans. They tend to be less dark. There are a lot of blue-eyed Italians, yeah. a lot of blonde Italians, and they, re they got, the vast majority of the slaves came from the steppe, came from Russia. It reminds me of that brilliant scene in True Romance. Well, the, the funniest thing is, that all happened. Yeah. That's a tangent in Sicily. We'll come back to Sicily. Yeah, yeah. Right? No, no, no. But uh, whoever knows that will... Well, know it. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So the, the story of Dettini is the story of Avignon, right? So Avignon is this centre of commerce and trade and religion, right? Yeah. And it's the hub of southwestern European economics for couple of centuries. You kind of forget these places, right? Yeah. And when you go there, you see it's a big walled town and it's absolutely beautiful, incredible squares. And if you're into theatre, they have probably the most famous French theatre festival in the summer in Avignon and all sorts of improvised theatre. You, you'll see parapluies, you'll see umbrellas all over the place walking <laughs> around, right? One of them might be macker. Exactly. But the reason I'm, we're interested in this, John, mm. is last weekend after the rugby, in Marseille, yeah. because I'd been writing about Avignon in this new book, this forthcoming book that I've been working on, and Dettini and where the money was coming from and all that, sort of, who was getting and who wasn't getting it, right? I wanted to go there because this was, during the period before the Hundred Years' War, the centre of European trade. Now, interestingly, the Hundred Years' War shifted European trade from the River Rhone to the River Rhine. And it yeah. shifted the axis of Europe from southwestern France to Germany mm. and to the spine of the Rhine, which goes more or less from the Alps all the way up to Rotterdam. Mm. And that's where you see the concentration of all German industry in the 15th century. So it is fascinating. Right. And so in a way, Avignon becomes the town that time forgot. So it has this 100 or maybe 200 year history of amazing flourishing. Yeah. And then it stops. What, what, what was going on the Danube at the time? Well, the Danube, now, actually, there's a great book on the Danube. There's an amazing book I read <laughs> so you just on the have Danube. to prod him here and there. And he's <laughs> no. off. So the Danube, if you look at Germany in particular, mm. Germany is defined by four big waterways. You've got the Rhine going up the left-hand side, the western side. Yeah. You have the Elbe 
in the east and across the south you've got the Danube. Yeah. Right. And yeah, then yeah, on the top okay. you've got the you've got the Baltic. Yes. So it's it's basically because square surrounded by water, right? Yeah. And once you once you appreciate that, you can understand how trade and people flowed all through the Danube. So so the Romans were incredibly scared of the Danube. The Romans were not as scared of the Rhine. They were scared of the Danube. They were scared of the tribes that lived within, on the other side, on the far side. Yes, of the Danube, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the Danau, as the Germans call it. And one of the great trips I would love to make, John, <laughs> is a Danube trip on the Danube from Switzerland, where the Danube rises. That to, could be in your retirement. Your one of those cruises. Oh, no, no, let's do it next year on a speedboat. Fuck my cruise. <laughs> no, but to this port of Constanza in Romania, out into the Black Sea. Yeah. And you travel all around. So you're you're going through the great cities, the Viennas of, of this world, but I mean mm, yeah, yeah. the Budapest of this world. But you're you're seeing the world as medieval people yeah, saw it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're going at the same pace as medieval people went. Yeah. So you're going slowly, you're absorbing things and all that sort of carry on. So yeah, I mean As the, you sit with a blanket on your knees on the deck. Blanket on my knees on the deck, yes, and an Agatha Christie novel. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like exactly. an old man and a bottle of you know, some complan, exactly. <laughs> and a bag for all my various different ailments and yeah. secretions. <laughs> anyway, anyway, let's get back. So I'm on Avignon and the Pont of Avignon and the Pont of Avignon last Sunday morning and the Pont of Avignon is incredibly famous, but what is fascinating mm. about it, only half of it's there. So right. it was built okay. across the Rhone, mm. but something happened to the bridge. It collapsed in the 17th century. And that interests me is why did it collapse? Because mm. there wasn't a war, because it wasn't blown up, and it collapsed as a result of climate change. And this oh, is on, fascinating. Go on, explain right? this. So basically what happened was you have the mini ice age, and this is what we're going to talk about, right? Yeah. One of the weirdest things of the 17th century is in Ireland, as well as all over Europe, it was an incredibly violent century, incredibly violent. You have civil wars in almost every country in the 60 years to 1680. So from 1620 to 1680, right? Poland was only at peace for 27 of those 60 years. Holland for only 14. France for just 11. And Spain for a mere three years. They're in all Ireland, very angry people. In, very, very angry. And no more angry than our friends in Ireland. In yeah. Ireland, half a million people died. Died between 1640 and the revolutions, the yeah. Irish Catholic revolutions against the plantation, 1641, and the arrival of you-know-who, Cromwell, yeah. and after Cromwell, right? But half a million people. That's one-fifth of our population died in this country alone. The English had their civil war. Think yeah. about it, the French had a civil war. So, so how is all that linked, though? So this is a fascinating thing. So a lot of historians used to say, oh, it's to do with religion, and it's to do with, you know, because there was, there was post-Reformation wars, it's to do with economics, blah, blah. But increasingly now, climatologists and environmental historians are looking at the fact that in 1618, we begin to see records of the temperature beginning to fall quite rapidly. Mm. This is what they call the mini ice age. Yes. But prior to this, it was called the medieval warm period, right? And warm periods, imagine if, you know, when you think about spring, mm. and Easter bunnies, John. Yes, I do. But the whole idea of spring is once the temperature warms up in any ecosystem, you get life. Yeah. You get verdant, you get all sorts of things. So imagine that on a global scale for a number of centuries, right? The temperature warms up. Yeah. So you get all sorts of life coming on. And what you get, of course, is population expansion. 
Yeah. Because the yields go up, because the agriculture is a little bit more productive, it's a little bit more predictable. Yeah. And Bob's your uncle, you get more food, and away we go, more kids survive, and you get population yep. expansion, right? Yep. Yep. So that's all happening up until the early 17th century. And then you see a reversal of this, and Europe going into this extraordinary period of deep, deep civil war. And the climatologists are saying, and this is the interesting point, is that it was a result of climate change, right? And that's what I was contemplating on the Pont of Avignon. Right, okay. When I was, and I was sober, I wasn't, yeah, I, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't even had a drink at this stage, right? So if you look at the history of the Pont of Avignon, it goes into disrepair in about the 1620s and 30s, right? So something must have been going on in France at the time in this incredibly rich place that they couldn't raise the taxes to rebuild the bridge. Yeah. Now, why did the bridge falter in that period? Is because the second part of the structure was made of wood, right? It wasn't yeah. all made of rock. And the wood, when the ground started to freeze, the wood started to become much more brittle. And they think that the reason that it actually collapsed was to do with initial climate change, right? Yeah. But interesting now, they know that the reason the entire thing was actually washed away was flooding in the 1680s when the temperature got warm again. Yeah. So when the temperature gets warm again after 60 years of freezing, what you get is the rivers expand and you get massive flooding. And it's the flooding that actually destroyed the bridge. But interestingly, they never rebuilt it because the locus of trade and commerce had shifted from the Rhone to the Rhine mm. because of the wars. But just come back, it, what, it, what it tells us is that climate change is a very old story, but more importantly is when you change the temperature of the world, even slightly, you get these extraordinary environmental and economic impacts that can change the way in which we live. So if you go back to look at that period, you say, okay, okay well, what was actually happening? So you look at what was happening. This is, this is the bizarre thing, John. So what you see is all across Europe, it's a period of intense religious fervor, mm -hmm. a period of genocide and dramatic population movement and disenfranchisement, right? Ireland is a great example. So you get the plantations, you get Cromwell, you get revolution, you get this fear of papists in London, you yeah. get this unbelievable Protestant reaction to Irish Catholicism, violent, genocidal, right? And, and this is basically because when the weather becomes erratic and more extreme, it unsettles people. People get nervous. Yeah. That's exactly what's yeah. happening. People starve, first of all. Yeah. And then when they say people dying around them, they start to get nervous and they start to blame other people, right? Yeah. So we started with parapluie in French. We're going to go to Voltaire, right? Come on, talk to me about so, Voltaire. So, so the French philosopher, Voltaire, right, was born at the end of the 17th century. But he was the first person to describe this period as a global crisis, right? Mm. And he said something, he was looking back from the vantage point of about 1730 at this crazy century that had just passed. And he said, there are three things that have a constant influence over the mind of man, John. Climate, government, and religion. And he was the first to identify climate as a serious... That's really interesting. It is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So it's a long, long time ago, right? And basically what happened was the temperature in the northern hemisphere started to drop precipitously from Japan and China all the way across to Europe. So it wasn't, this was not just mm. a European phenomenon. You can see all the evidence in China. So what we see historically is the first reports from about 
1610 onwards of torrential rain in the spring, snowfall in previously almost subtropical regions, mm. rivers, much in the Bosphorus in Turkey, yeah. freezing over. 1627 is the wettest recorded summer in Europe, and that's in 500 years. The following year becomes known as the year without a summer. Lower temperatures meant crops obviously failed to ripen, right? Yeah. In Ireland, they'd snow in October 1641, which signals the coldest winter on record in Ireland. And of the 62 ever recorded floodings of the Seine in Paris, 18 of them occurred in the 17th century. In Britain, now imagine what this does to psychology, right? Mm. In the 16 years to 1661, Britain experienced, England experienced 10 harvest failures in 16 years. Wow. Okay. And in Poland, the people experienced frost for 109 days in 1666, as opposed to 63 days on average prior to this. So the temperature really falls. This, this is also the time when they were having the, the, the frost fairs on the Thames yeah. in London. Yeah, you know, exactly. And that became the norm as well. So, so it's amazing. But of course, what happens then is that a small change in temperature has a dramatic impact on the ripening of crops. And a dramatic impact to the ripening of crops means people starve. Yeah. They don't just go hungry. Yeah. They starve. So, so for example, right, if you get a, temperatures falling in the growing season, agricultural yields can fall between 30 and 50%, right? And that sends food prices upwards. Mm. But in the old days, food prices affected everyone because most people only spent most of their money on food. They didn't have anything else. There was no yeah. consumer goods. There were no bloody iPhones or, yeah, you know, yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah. right? So that's the first thing. Second thing, if you're spending on food rises, you're spending on everything else falls. So you're spending on artisans things, on cobblers and all this falls. So the artisan class in the urban centers, they lose their livelihood too. Mm. So their livelihood is impacted. So first of all, you've got the agricultural workers. Then you've got the artisan workers in the urban areas. So everyone's getting squeezed because food is costing more. And then the third thing, and this is crucial to understand why famines happen, right? Famines tend to happen not because of food in general disappearing, but famines happen because the impact on food prices of a small change in food availability is phenomenal, right? So if you think about it, right, suppose there's a, a farmer who harvests 500 bushels of grain mm. every year, right? And he needs 175 of those bushels of grain to feed his animals yeah. and 75 for his family. That leaves 250 for the market. So that's normal time. Now imagine a bad harvest cuts production by 30%, right? Because temperature collapses. That means he has only 350 bushels. Now he still needs, think about it, he still needs the 250 for his own use, his family and his animals. Yeah. That leaves only 100 bushels for the market. So that's a fall of 60% on the open market. So a 30% fall in yields leads to a fall of 60% on the open market. That's how people starve. Yeah. And of course, what happens is when you're weak, you catch diseases, right? And very, very quickly, you get dysentery, diarrhea, all these things. And these people, these things kill people very, very yeah, quickly. Yeah. And if you think about humans, humans need about 1,500 calories a day. You and I need about 4,000. But in general, <laughs> <laughs> general, just no, to keep ticking over. normal looking people, right? Yeah. <laughs> need about 1,500, right? That's just, just to keep ticking over. But if that falls... And if you cannot acquire 1,500, you weaken and you die really quickly. Yeah. And then, of course, because you're weak, you can't work. 
And so you can see very quickly how a small change in temperature leads to what is seen as, well, we can deal with this for a while. But if you get two or three years of harvest failure, you get mass starvation. So obviously all of this kind of, any sort of change, be it climate change or societal change, it unsettles societies yeah. and people and so. So how were people reacting uh, way back when? This is the mad thing. Now, just by the way, okay, if you're interested in this carry on, there is a wonderful book that I read last week, which is by Jeffrey Parker. It was a Sunday Times history book of the year called Global Crisis, War, Climate Change and Catastrophe in the 17th Century. So it tells you what's going on and it's, it's great stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But the reason we're interested in this, John, is that it happened before and humans react to change in unexpected ways. Yeah. So back then, the first thing is, when the world tips in a different direction, we look for scapegoats. Right. Now, back then, what you see is this extraordinary increase in this idea. Now, I'm going to, this is the word, remember we were talking about, we have words of the week, John. Oh, yes. You'll, you'll love this one. <laughs> this is the description, right? So the scapegoats is, such statements, according to this book, reflected the prevailing hecatogenic Outlook. Pecotogenic. And this is the word of the week. Pecotogenic, right? So peco comes from the Latin word sin. Right. And pecotogenic is relating events to people's bad behavior, right? So if you're off riding and doing drugs, okay, and something bad happens to you, right? You have been pecotogenically associated, right? Okay. (laughs) I love it. This is a great one. Martin Wolf couldn't even come up with pecotogenic, right? (laughs) So it attributes disasters, including military defeats, for example, and bad weather and famine to human misconduct. Right. So what you see then in reaction, in a pecotogenic reaction to the disasters, you see all sorts of censorious edicts being issued by the state, Catholic and Protestant in Europe, right? Refraining from dancing, drinking, fornicating, adultery, gambling. These have now become things that people cannot do, right? You get this censorious religious morality flourishes. In England, in England, they banned even Christmas. Right. And the Maypole was banned, right? So sorry, just, just as a result of, of the, so, changing climate and changing people's heads. So imagine where, where these people are at in their heads. They don't understand the world particularly mm. well. They all believe in God. Right. They see what has just happened, the change in climate is something dramatic and it must be related to God's will. Yeah. It has to be related to the creator. And they say, okay, well, the creator's pissed off. What's he pissed off again? Yeah. He's pissed off. You're fornicating. You're sleeping with somebody you shouldn't be sleeping with. You're smoking crack, whatever you're doing, right? the, The 17th century version. And you're fornicating, you're gambling and you're drinking. So suddenly you get all these edicts that try to change behavior in order to placate the gods. I mean, still very, very Roman, still very, very ancient Greek to placate the gods, right? But what you see then in Ireland is extreme Protestantism, extreme Catholicism, right? Mm. It's all about changing people's behavior. So the world gets swept up. Europe gets swept up in this bizarre reaction, which is almost like, if I change my behavior, everything will be fine, right? So it leads to fanatics all over the place, crazy religious fanatics coming in. Does that mean, I'm just thinking there, does that mean like when there was climate change, 
that makes the, the climate colder, that there's more regulation. And when climate change that makes it warmer, warmer, you get more libertarianism. You, you may well. This is a connection you are making. I know you're going down this road. It's the post-Robert F. Kennedy stuff. Yes, yeah, yeah, and the Malay and stuff. It's the, but it's the idea. It's the idea that basically the world, if it's inexplicable, has to be explained through morality lessons. Yeah. And one of these lessons. So, for example, the very unfortunate things is that if you imagine what's happened, so you get lots and lots of people are beginning to starve. You get lots and lots of beggars. Mm. You get lots and lots of people coming from the countryside into the towns because there's no food in the countryside and they hope there's food in the towns. So what you get is the towns become full up with beggars and destitute people and etc. And also you forget that this is a deeply misogynistic world, right? Where particularly religious men, are obsessed by female sexuality. They're obsessed by chastity and they're obsessed by virginity and all this carry on, right? And of course, lots and lots of people are really on the margins. And you see a dramatic spike in witch hunts, Mm. right? Witch hunts. From Scotland all the way through to Germany, you get this massive increase in the amount of poor women who are burned at the stake who are drowned in ducking chairs. And usually all they are is they're destitute. Yeah. And they're regardless, like, you know, that awful way, fallen women, want women, but they're yeah. just poor. Yeah, yeah. And so, so what you see is religious intolerance, you see social intolerance, and the Catholics blame the Protestants, the Protestants blame the Catholics, and everyone blames the Jews as well. So the yes, Jews have okay. a terrible time, right? Yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. they're getting it from everyone, right? Yeah. And so this is going on, and this is the backdrop to Cromwell arriving in Ireland. Right. So he's not just arriving after the English Civil War. He's not just arriving because he is a deep colonist. He's arriving against the background of religious fanaticism, which is fueled and informed by climate change. This I find absolutely fascinating. Okay, Mike, let's talk about the legacy of all that after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
So, okay, this is all going on in, in 17th century madness. Yeah. So the 17th century madness. The economics madness. of mad climate change. Yeah. But there's a ripple effect. Yeah. So what is the kind of legacy of this mini ice well, age? Well, well, the legacy is, first of all, it's demographic. So remember I talked about Cromwell coming to Ireland. And Cromwell came with this mad anti-papist idea, right? That basically it was the papists causing climate change, right? Yes. And he did for the Irish Catholics. We know that, right? And he, it was a genocidal campaign against Irish Catholics. And it basically configured this country for the last 400 years. That's the legacy for Ireland. Mm. It's that a lot of the stuff we're dealing with stems from climate change. Yeah. Right? Which, again, we, it's, it's hard for us to get our heads around that. You think in France, for example, French Huguenots, this was 10% of the French population. The Catholics in France just rounded on the Huguenots and they killed hundreds of thousands of them, and even 5,000 of them arrived here, French Huguenots, right? right? And they've yeah, been yeah, part yeah. of the ferment here for a long, long time, right? So you get this massive population movement, as you're getting now. Think about climate yeah. change from Africa. What's driving the people isn't just poverty, isn't just, it's fear of harvests, it's fear of crazy, crazy weather patterns that they yeah. don't have before, droughts, all sorts of things. So was this made worse because the social structure in society was more vulnerable in general because yeah. of medicine and you know, the lack of medicine and all that kind of you stuff? You see, I always think that one of the things we try to do on this podcast is look at history to just give us a sense that all this stuff has happened before. Mm. I mean, this is obviously global freezing, not global warming, yeah. but it's the yeah. same sort of dynamic that we, we forget that our world is an unbelievably fragile, complex system where things that can happen in one area can trigger other events in other areas. And people who feel totally unaffected can actually be impacted very, very dramatically. And we feel because of technology and money and communications that we are kind of above that, that man is above this, but mm. we're not. We're, we're not at all. We're not above this at all. And that's why looking at history is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. But everybody is looking for certainty in their, in their life. You're absolutely right. And the one thing that insurance can't deal with is uncertainty. Yeah. That's why you're seeing insurance premiums spiking up because insurance in economics is all based on predictability. Yeah. If I know that on average you are likely to do this, then I can kind of insure for it. Yeah. But if you're jumping all around the place volatile-wise because of climate change, then I can't insure. Yeah. It's not that this is a one-for-one -one mirror image and what happened then will happen now. But what it does show you is that life on Earth and human life on Earth is highly dependent on the environment and highly dependent on the climate. And that the food supply and the food supply chains and all those things are much less certain than we understand or than we assume, right? Because we're so far away from the farm. Mm. Secondly, is that people's lives depend on the climate. And if you're in a poor area, you're going to move. Yeah, of course. Right? And then you think about wars. Then you think about all the wars that are likely to happen over, over water. So even, even Israel-Palestine, one of the key, it's hard to see it now in Gaza, but one of the key resource problems between Israel and Palestine is water. Yeah. Because the Israelis are taking all the water and the Palestinians have none. You know, we've done a podcast before on the Himalayas, the problems between China and India over water. So mm. all these things that we assume are kind of 17th century issues. Yeah. They're not. They're really live and they could happen again. And that's why 
as I was strolling over the Pont d'Avignon last Sunday morning, I felt this is a podcast worth discussing. We'll talk to you next week. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.